Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program where we put the world of motoring and transport under the microscope. I'm David Brown and in this program we look at news stories including one in six cars on the road in America have been subject to a recall but have not been fixed. We have an interview with Dr Barry Watson, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Road Safety Partnership, whose head office is situated in Geneva. Some very interesting opinions on the psychology of road safety. We road test the Jaguar XF Saloon. And in our panel discussion with Brian Smith and Errol Smith, we take a light-hearted look at stories, including a new video game that has some Aussie classic cars as part of the fleet, including a 1951 Holden Ute. And Bentley creates a fishing set for their new SUV, which costs a mere $140,000. There is also a picnic set which is at a snip at only $55,000. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can hear longer versions of the interviews, road test and quirky news by going to drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program from iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now to start the program, let's have the news. These days, motor vehicle recalls are often in the news. Over the past 20 years, more than 437 million vehicles have been affected by safety recalls in the United States. In 2015 alone, more than 51 million vehicles were the subject of safety recalls more than any previous year. However, the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that more than 45 million vehicles that were the subject of safety recalls issued between 2013 and 2015 have still not been fixed. Further analysis by J.D. Power & Associates shows that older models of cars are much less likely to have their faults fixed. Large work vans have the highest overall recall completion rate at 86%, while the mid-premium sports car segment has a completion rate of just 31%. And the greater the number of vehicles involved in a recall corresponds to a low completion rate. Transport planners know that the biggest results that they want to get from an Olympic Games is not just how well we cope during the event, but what positive legacy of transport infrastructure will be provided for the ongoing benefit of the city. The South East Queensland Council of Mayors has just released its pre-feasibility report into the region's ability to bid for and cope with the 2028 Olympic and Paralympic Games. The report shows that the region requires a detailed program of work to support South East Queensland's future growth, including a people mass movement study. While not specifically mentioned in the report, Brisbane Lord Mayor and South East Queensland Council of Mayors Chairperson Graham Quirk said on ABC Radio that a high-speed rail link between the Gold and Sunshine Coasts has been flagged as a possible sweetener in a bid to host the 2028 Games in South East Queensland. Whilst travel time on public transport is important, getting to the bus or train is seen by many as the biggest issue. Taxi services offer door-to-door transport, but the big issue is how easily can you get a vehicle. New ride-sharing services such as Uber have revolutionised the game. 
but Ford and MIT are putting a series of electric vehicles on the MIT campus in Massachusetts that will allow students to hail cars via a mobile app in order to shuttle them to and from class. The electric self-driving shuttles, which will be small enough to navigate sidewalks within the campus, will be outfitted with cameras and light-sensitive radar. Ford and MIT researchers hope to use the data that is obtained to predict demand for the shuttles, then routing these vehicles to areas where they are needed most at the corresponding times. Rail services in country areas are often seen as a critical lifeline to regional communities and a strong tourist attraction, but they are expensive to run. New figures released in an answer to a question on notice to the Queensland Minister for Transport, Stirling Hinchcliffe, revealed each passenger trip on the Westlander that goes from Brisbane to Charville is subsidised about $4,000, while each passenger trip on the Inlander, Townsville to Mount Isa, is subsidised about $3,500, not including concessions. The total cost in subsidies to the state government for these two services is more than $30 million for the last financial year. A one-way trip from Brisbane to Charville costs an adult passenger about $148.50. A Z06 Corvette that has been re-engineered as an electric car has just set a new land speed record for a street-legal electric vehicle. The Genovation Extreme Electric, or GXE, reached a speed of 330 kilometres per hour during supervised test at Space Florida's shuttle landing facility at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The GXE includes a battery management system, inverters, and electric motors that produce 450 kilowatts of power. If you are considering driving it on the street, the makers claim that it has a range of 210 kilometers during normal driving operation, with a near 50-50 weight distribution, and is optimized for a low center of gravity. On a number of modern motorways, the road authorities have constructed tunnels and bridges for animals to cross the road. But do they work? The bridges in particular seem precarious to say the least, but apparently they are working better than expected. New research shows that koalas quickly learnt to use special road-crossing ledges in South Queensland, something that could help slow their population decline. Griffith University ecologist Professor Darrell Jones said it was imperative to address the absolute shocking 80% decline in the koala population in Queensland's Redland and the nearby Koala Coast. And that has been the news. I saw an old community announcement film the other day from about 1947, which was a piece about road safety. The message was being delivered by a man in a mortarboard hat and academic gown, writing things on a blackboard. It was the style that dominated road safety education for many years and still does now in some cases. The formal lecture to students who just have to sit and listen as to what they were doing wrong. We have seen some significant changes in education in general and in road safety in particular. Should we move away from a fear-based formal lecture and if so to what? Traffic and transport started very much in the realm of engineering but a recent conference in Brisbane was titled the International Conference on Traffic and Transport Psychology. 
is this just academic dreaming or is it the right direction and does it have practical applications? Dr Barry Watson gave the keynote address at the conference. Dr Watson is the Chief Executive Officer of the Global Road Safety Partnership which is hosted by the Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies in Geneva, Switzerland. It is a great pleasure to have him on the line. Barry, the whole issue of road safety internationally is a big issue. Indeed. Um, unfortunately, road crashes, and particularly road, the fatalities and injuries that arise from them, is still a major global problem. It really does represent a humanitarian crisis that for many years was unrecognised. Fortunately now it is recognised, but to give your listeners an insight, at the moment it's estimated that about 1.25 million people are killed on the road every year around the world. About 90% of those people are being killed in low and middle income countries, whereas in high income countries, generally the road toll has been coming down. And the problem, particularly in low and middle income countries, is that many of them are due to strong economic development, experiencing high rates of motorisation. The road infrastructure uh, and the vehicles are having trouble keeping up with it. And as, as an example of this, uh, about half of the world's road fatalities are actually the vulnerable road users. They're the cyclists, the pedestrians and the motorcyclists. So we've still got this major development that, this major problem I think, that road deaths are, in many cases, I think people are seeing them as the inevitable collateral damage of economic development, but we've got to turn that thinking around because it's, as we know, road crashes are preventable. We've learnt that lesson from countries such as Australia and now the need is to really achieve these uh, changes that we've seen in our country in other countries. You talked about it as a global vision to do that and we're now talking about international aid not just for things like hunger and water which are very important but also for this particular issue? Yes and in fact that I think what really signified a major change in thinking about road safety was back in 2011 the United Nations for the first time really placed a lot of attention on road safety and in fact they launched the decade of action for road safety. So this was the 10 year period from 2011 to 2020 which was aimed at reducing the number of world road fatalities by 50% to what they were otherwise projected to be. Now that was a, a, a big positive step forward. More recently, um, last year, the, the United Nations then released the Sustainable Development Goals. Now the background of this is that up to that point, a lot of the world's development and aid was really being directed by the, what we'll call the Millennium Development Goals. Now, unfortunately, road safety wasn't one of those. It included things like malaria and other public health problems. But as a result of road safety not being there, it wasn't getting that necessarily that international attention. The good news is the Sustainable Development Goals, which are operating from 2016 through to 2030, have road safety mentioned twice. There's one um, target in there which is about, which sets out the, the goal of reducing road fatalities around the world by 50%. And the other is focusing much more on what needs to occur in cities. And there it's very much about ensuring that road safety is part of the changes we need to see to ensure that cities are, are as livable and achieve the mobility, and, but also the environmental goals of society. 
we often have very simple ideas about what should be done. Everyone sitting around a table will tell you that the big issue is or, or that. First world solutions, are they practical in third world countries? Is there an easy transfer of possible solutions? That's a good question and, and the answer unfortunately is complex because it very much depends on the nature of the initiative and uh, the circumstances. So I, I'd have to say I think in the, uh, the vehicle and road infrastructure area, um, often the transfer is relatively straightforward. Having said that though, often the, it's, it's still a challenge because the, you're, you're often trying to bolt on uh, infrastructure in a, a circumstance where there's not the, the overall support for it. I'd have to say though in the behavioural area where we're looking at interventions, whether it's education or enforcement, the situation is a lot more complex because you've got, whilst human nature and people are the same everywhere, you've got very different circumstances. And an extensive interview with Dr Barry Watson can be found on our website at drivenmedia.com.au where he talks about some practical examples, what worked in Australia, what might work overseas and the directions we have to consider if we are to be effective in reducing our road toll. You're listening to Overdrive. When Jaguar showed their S-Type, a new largest sedan, in 1998 at the Birmingham Motor Show, it was a design throwback to their glory years of the early 60s. People saw it immediately and thought Jaguar, but that doesn't mean that it made it over-desirable. Actually, Overdrive raced a diesel S-Type in the Dutton Rally. It was fun, but it did look traditional rather than modern. Now, the S-Type was replaced by the XF in 2007, a much more modern car, particularly in its looks. The second generation has now just come out. It's priced from around $90,000 and upwards. It's in the large sedan over $70,000 class, and it competes with the Mercedes E-Class, the BMW 5 Series, and the Audi A6. Paul Morell from Practical Motoring and I have been driving some of the XF models and he joins us on the line now. Paul, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome, David. I found that when the XF came in, it had a number of almost cute features. The gear selector knob rose up once you turned the ignition on. It was inside trying to look very modern, perhaps break down that old image. Yes, I think you're exactly right, David. Um, what makes a car feel quite special uh, little little touches like that and, and things like a pop-up gear lever knob which no one else has becomes a sort of wow look at me feature and that was certainly one of them. It was interesting all round with the X, the XF and the XJ. I mean, you can say that trying to recapture old designs is not an easy thing to do and uh, the designer of Jaguar, Ian Callum, uh, has sort of had a good crack at it and done pretty well. But I think with the, uh, the XJ... And certainly the XF. I think with the XF, he's pretty much said, no, we're not going to go back anymore. We'll go forwards. I must say, it's got the balance right. It's a biggish sort of car. Uh, the, the sloping back of it doesn't look like it's tacked on or it fits awkwardly. It flows with the whole car, which I think really makes it look elegant. It's a very elegant car. I guess it's, it's one of those things, as you say, with the S-Type and a couple of the other previous model Jags, it was always easy to say, oh, it's a Jaguar, which obviously is a polarizing thing. Those people who loved old Jaguars obviously loved the, 
the retro styling thing. Those people who love modern cars keep saying, oh, but it's an old Jaguar. So to some people, that was a negative. You're right. The XF is a more cohesive design, but then by definition, it is also then a less distinctive design. Uh, distinctively Jaguar. Oh, yes. I think you've got to come to grips with that. Otherwise, you end up with, uh, was it Buick or no, Oldsmobile in America had an advertising campaign that said the car your father would drive, <laughs> which was meant to be great, but in the modern thing it said, fine, well, I won't have one. It hardly appeals to a young person. Exactly right. And as I think the expression you and I have used before, Harley Earl once said, you can always sell a young man's car to an old man, but you can never sell an old man's car to a young man. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely uh, uh, right. Uh, so now, the new one come out. Uh, have you driven a few? Did you? Which ones did you drive? Did you drive the petrol, the new petrol engine in it? Yeah, the petrol engine one, I think, is probably the pick of the bunch. Um, you know, for those of us who don't have to pay for our own petrol. <laughs> Four cylinder. It, is that the new Ingenium model? Yes, if that's how it's pronounced, the new Ingenium. Uh, make up a word and then make it your own. Yes, that is the new engine. The Jaguar have really have really advanced themselves in the past and the new engine designs their new body designs their new car designs and also perhaps more importantly the the way they've improved their customer satisfaction levels i mean they've really really pushed it along so things of of the of old with lack of reliability and bits falling off and that famous british leyland build quality <laughs> contradiction in terms now is, is very much a memory i drove a couple of the diesels the two liter diesel and the three liter s i gotta say it's a new diesel engine i reckon it's a perler you hopped in it it was smooth it was easy it had no none of the negative feelings that you got from a diesel engine had all the positives low down torque it pulled away well it surged nicely you felt you're in a big car but you weren't hampered by the weight it was just, I thought, a lovely balance as well. And Paul and I continue our conversation about the Jaguar XF. If you wanted to hear our further thoughts, go to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. And finally, let's have a chat about some of the more difficult or an unusual stories to do with motoring and transport. On the line we have Errol Smith. G'day Errol. G'day David. And Brian Smith. G'day Brian. G'day David. And uh, Brian, I just wanted to mention that uh, depending on when your station is playing this uh, particular program, uh, the census night, if you haven't done it yet, it's still very important. My brother once said to me, I don't want to fill out this census form, no one uses it. And I said to him, I use it every day. I was in transport modelling and we were using the data to try and understand where people were and where they, uh, and, and then predict where they might be uh, with jobs available going to them. Brian, you would uh, use good data extensively, wouldn't you? It's crucial. It's crucial to investment in transport and infrastructure and services. So, yeah, I mean, the, the census really gives us a snapshot of where people are living and what they're doing and some of their, you know, where they're travelling to and from. It's vital. Well, in this year, of course, there's an additional question in Ford or Holden. You know, you just have to tick <laughs> which one. Let's move on from that. Errol, you have a story. Well, if your dream is to get behind the wheel of a Falcon XR8 or perhaps a GTS Maloo Ute and tear up the Great Ocean Road with no speed limits, well, hold on to your hats because that dream can now be a reality for you. Well, a virtual reality, at least. 
You can do that in the upcoming game, Forza Horizon 3, because it'll be set down under with a range of famous Aussie vehicles and famous Aussie locations. You can take for a spin Aussie classics such as the 1951 Holden 50 2106 FX Ute, all 60 horsepower's worth, the 1974 HQ Sandman panel van, the 1977 Tirana A9X and the 73 XB Falcon GT. On top of that is a, a few more modern Aussie icons like the 2014 FPV Limited Edition Pursuit Ute and the 2014 HSV GTS. Now, David, I was a bit disappointed that the P76 didn't make the cut. <laughs> that would have been fantastic. That would have made... And with a 44-gallon drum in the boot. Errol, I understand this game... Um, has uh, you know, you drive around and you may find some of these classic vehicles in yeah, well, sheds, they, is it? Well, yeah, they, they call them barn finds in the game and they haven't listed what they'll be. So there is a, there, there's still a chance you might dig, out, dig, dig up an old P76 in a barn in the middle of nowhere somewhere. <laughs> and you might have to restore it and then you get a chance to drive it around. Yeah, or perhaps a, you know, a Tirana or a, or a Monaro or something else. I think the Sandman panel van, that's what I'd be looking forward to tooling yeah. around. I wonder if it would have the, the tiny, skinny steering wheel and very, very frighteningly light steering that makes you wonder whether <laughs> you, you know, you're actually on the road or, or uh, you know, uh, sliding through water. Yeah, well, they do try and, try and make them realistic in terms of their, their power <laughs> and handling as much as you can in a computer game. Well, why? Well, I thought these games were all about winning. I understand that this Frozen Horizon, Frozen Horizon stuff... For, Forza, David. ...is uh, about winning races and you also can increase your popularity by driving fast, destroying property and performing other stunts and antics. Is a 1951 Holden Ute the sort of car that you want to do with? I, <laughs> if, if you're going to build it honestly, it's going to have to stop every 1,000 kilometres and change the oil. Now, the deal there, David, of course, is that you find one that's its only pristine version left in the world and you trash it for extra points <laughs> driving it through a caravan <laughs> like Mad Max. To make it real though, after about 20,000k you've got to decoke it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You get extra points if you can regrind the uh, the valves. The, the valves virtually by hand. <laughs> <laughs> now they they've got a compressed version of Australia, isn't it? So rather than the yeah. full excitement of driving thousands of kilometers um, they've got it all compressed up so that you can, you know, drive from mountains to the sort of beach and to Uluru and places like that straight away almost. Yeah, yeah. It's it's still an, what they call an open world game, so you can pretty much drive wherever you want, but obviously it's not the full size of Australia, so you don't have to spend, you know, 24 hours nonstop hooning up the coast. Does the panel van have a bench seat and do you take a partner with you and do you have to stop regularly for some social recreation <laughs> i reckon david you could probably park it backwards in a drive-in wouldn't that be fantastic in the <laughs> yes in the video game then you know lie in the back and, and uh, open the hatches and watch the movie through the back if you do well in the game do you get extra points and so you can buy things like insulation for the inside of the car because those panel vans i had one were very cold I think when you do really well in the game, you get a chance to buy a Japanese car. <laughs> so one that's reliable and comfortable and has a radio that does more than AM and <laughs> cassette player. 
I've watched a couple of you, well, a YouTube uh, version of some young guy describing with great uh, fanfare the upcoming new cars on it, of which he knew absolutely nothing about. He didn't know what a panel van was. I think they still called it a ute as well. Ute, poor sad gigs. The ute was very significant in Australia, although Australia wasn't the first place to make a ute. I think Henry Ford made one in America. But uh, it became very big in, a, in, in Australia in 1934 when Ford made one. And they did it because a lady wrote to them and said that they wanted a car that was good enough to go to church on Sunday and carry a pig to market on Monday. <laughs> and the guy who made that was Louis Bant, I think his name was. And uh, he was the engineer who worked on it in Australia very much. And, you know, it was, he died in 1987. You know how he died? He went to an ABC show on utilities, driving a restored version of the old one, and driving home he had an accident and died. Oh, oh terrible. No. Hmm. Yeah. Whose turn is it? Mine, David. David, if you've got $420,000 plus on-road costs to buy uh, a Bentley SUV... It's their new Bentayga. You'll probably want to use it out in the boondocks, and uh, you might want to take it fishing. Not any kind of fishing, but Bentley has got you covered. If you are a fly fisherman or a fly fisher person, Bentley is providing us an option, uh, one of the most expensive fishing kits of all times. It costs $140,000. It's handcrafted. It includes uh, much more than just a plastic tackle box thrown in the boot. And, uh, you know, a broken down old smelly um, fishing rod and reel. It's got uh, four sort of uh, uh, beautiful fly rods in saddle leather trimmed tubes with linen cross stitching, two nets in leather bags and uh, a tackle box, which is also a refreshment case. It also includes a place for putting your waders uh, to keep them, um, uh, keep the, I guess, the damp out of the car. Um, The drinks case is also trimmed in linen leather. Uh, and the wooden uh, waiter storage um, comes with a neoprene-lined interior. You can also get a, a, a mechanical clock as an option too, $300,000 Mulliner Turbulon uh, by Brettling. And, of course, uh, if you don't want to fish, you can go on a picnic, David. And, of course, uh, Bentley helps out with a, uh, a picnic set, which is uh, just $55,000. It's called the Lindley Hamper by Mulliner. Uh, and it's uh, basically, um, yeah, you'll be able to show what it means to go on a picnic in your $420,000 Bentley. I don't really see that sort of Bentley, even though it's a, a SUV with a sticker on the back saying, gone fishing. I don't, it just doesn't fit it. it if you are really going to do it, are they going to have roof racks for, for fishing poles? Well, that's right. You need roof racks, you need a tow bar, because you're probably going to tow the tinny. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Errol Smith, David Campbell, Brian Smith, Dr. Barry Watson, Paul Morell, Hayden Brown and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of the feature Road Tests and Quirky News on our You can listen to longer segments of the features Road Tests and Quirky News on our website at drivenmedia.com.au 
or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>